0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Aaron Stani, and I'm very happy to be joined by the delightful Moya Lothian-McLean. Moya, how are you?
1: I'm really well. I'm excited. We very rarely get an Aaron-Moya pairing, and I very rarely co-host, so I feel like I've got a lot to prove today.
0: On tonight's show, we'll be discussing First Minister Mark Drakeford weighing in on the Cardiff riots, which followed the death of two teenage boys. Is Labour doing enough to be considered an alternative to the Tories? And we'll finish with a rare good news story about one London council that have made a UK first. So stay tuned for that first story. It's often difficult to understand economics, I think intentionally so, because that suits the powerful. But in any case, it's pretty unusual to hear a government, and particularly a chancellor, saying they're comfortable with a recession. But that's precisely what happened when Jeremy Hunt spoke to Sky News this morning. In a sense, the numbers were a bit of a shocker. I mean, you know, we both know that it was good, but the headline rate came down, but the core rate went up. And now look at interest rate expectations up to five and a half percent. Are you comfortable with that, with the Bank of England doing whatever it takes to bring down inflation, even if that potentially would precipitate that recession that you've almost
2: just avoided? Yes, because in the end, the inflation is a source of instability. And if we want to have prosperity, if we want to grow the economy, if we want to reduce the risk of recession, we have to support the Bank of England in the difficult decisions that they take. And indeed, I have to do something else, which is to make sure the decisions that I take as chancellor, very difficult decisions, uh, to balance the books so that the markets, the world can see that Britain is a country that pays its way. All these things mean that uh, monetary policy at the Bank of England, fiscal policy by the chancellor are aligned.
0: To grow the economy, we have to shrink the economy. To avoid a recession and have growth, it's acceptable to have a, a recession. Lots of contradictions there, but Hunt proceeded to contradict himself again.
2: Even if it means precipitating a recession? Well, um, we will deliver this task and we will make sure that the government plays its part, the Bank of England plays its part, but it is not a trade-off between tackling inflation and recession. In the end, the only path to sustainable growth is to bring down inflation.
0: It's apparently not a trade-off, although the IMF kind of insinuated that it is, with wage growth highlighted as one of the reasons the UK not falling into recession earlier this week. But Hunt thinks wage growth is bad and that it's causing inflation. And he described pay rises above the rates of inflation as, quote, a terrible mistake as far back as a month ago. These are what workers need in order to not get poorer, i.e. wage increases above inflation. Later on, Sky News spoke to Conservative peer Norman Lamont, Britain's Chancellor, between 1990 and 1993. He had this to say.
2: I warned some time ago that I thought interest rates were too low. I think many people with hindsight would say that that was right and that the Bank of England were rather slow in putting up interest rates. They overreacted to Covid, cut interest rates too much, uh, had Quantitative easing, that is the injection of money into the economy on far too large a scale for too long. And all that has meant that we've got this degree of domestically generated inflation, which we have to hold. This is in the interests of everybody. It's taking a longer term view. Uh, of course, it's very awkward politically for the government, but I think Jeremy Hunt should be applauded, not criticized, applauded for taking uh, a view that is in the national interest in the
0: longer term. So interest rates should be higher, and Britain should be plunged into recession in order to get inflation back down to 2%. Not 4 or 5%. Has to be 2%. Sounds rather extremist. I said on Navara last year that the plan was to make you poorer. And that's what Lamont is openly saying here and what Hunt finds acceptable. The plan is to make you poorer and engineer a recession, because if we don't, then you'll get poorer and we'll have a a recession. Of course, the alternative is a strategy around making energy as cheap as possible in the long term and fixing prices in the short term. Then, of course, we need to address the issue of profiteering by big business and the 0.1%. Why? Because that's a massive part of the problem when it comes to inflation. Research from Unite the Union in March found this profit margins for the 350 largest. British companies that are publicly traded on the FTSE 350 found their profits were 89% higher compared to the same period in 2019. That study found that the profits of the big eight shipping firms had increased by wait for it over 20,000%. Meanwhile, oil refineries in terms of profits per barrel had seen profits rise and poultry 366%. Agribusiness profits increased by 255%, while the big four energy companies saw profit rise by 84%. Supermarkets, food processing, agribusiness, oil refineries, oil companies, energy companies, all are making far higher profits now than before. So why aren't the government telling them to reduce their profit margins and therefore lower prices? After all, that would help address inflation. You have to conclude they don't because this is an act of class war. The wealthy can benefit from inflation while working people have to pay for it. The average Joe has taken a massive hit in the last 18 months, but that's not enough. Now they need to ensure a recession too. All this is happening while the managing director of Harrods openly tells the Financial Times that the company is performing well and that the rich get richer in a recession. Meanwhile, Europe's largest company is luxury conglomerate LVMH. They make Louis Vuitton handbags and sell Moet and Hennessy brandy. Talk about a sign of the times. It's kind of incredible, Moet, that after everything over the last 18 months with falling living standards, falling it has to be said to an extent not seen in decades, that the government thinks it's okay to basically say, a recession is fine, don't worry, this is normal, there's no alternative.
1: I think we need to think longer than the last 18 months. We need to think for the entire 13 years the Tories have been in power. You know, Hunt was returning to this dog-eared hymn sheet where he's pinning the blame of inflation on people's spending power. But unless you're super rich, as you pointed out, Aaron, we're all getting poorer. Wages have dropped. We don't have anything to save, you know. But the goods inflation is still sky high despite overall inflation going down. And he's arguing that you know, increasing interest rates will tackle that, But it won't tackle the groupanies, as you said. And it still really baffles me that there is any trust left in the Tories' approach to economics, or how wholesale they have managed to convince people or, you know, institutions like the mainstream media that their approach will work this time, like we promise. Because since 2007, Britain has had more than a decade of lost growth. If you look at the average British household, it's more than £8,000. £8,000! poorer than counterparts in say France or Germany. And the Tories have presided over most of that period. And the two key things that have stagnated, which reporting by the Resolution Foundation found are incomes and productivity. And it's productivity that research suggests will be absolutely key to ensuring these long-term better living standards that we keep talking about. Higher wages are good, yes, but unless we have productivity, then the wholesale landscape is not going to get better. But the Tories have not provided any answers for this. All they think about, is simultaneously increasing inequality and ensuring that real-term wage cuts remain entrenched in society. and It exposes how nakedly ideological their approach to the public's economic welfare is, because if they actually were the caretakers of the economy, if they actually did care about the long-term economic future of Britain, they would be investing in increasing Britain's productivity, but they're not. Instead, you've got the Chancellor going on TV saying, maybe recession's fine.
0: Maybe a recession's fine. That's basically what he said. And I think he actually, his exact words were yes when he was asked if it's acceptable. You know, we had this discussion prior to the, to the show, you know, how do you want to present this? We don't want to put uh, false words into Jeremy Hunt's mouth, but he, he said it's acceptable. This is the thing with Jeremy Hunt. He's Presentation-wise, he seems so sort of just calm and relaxed, but saying you're, you're fine with a recession is actually quite a radical proposition. There's also a separate point I want to make, which is this. Even if inflation falls, it still means things will be expensive. Even if inflation does fall as a result of a recession, the high prices we presently have would remain in place. Low inflation doesn't mean falling prices. That's deflation. And regarding high prices being here to stay, just listen to the Energy and Climate Intelligence Units. They're a government advisory body. Their boss said this ahead of the energy regulator, Ofgem, reducing the energy price cap yesterday. While the falling price cap is a relief for households, this gas crisis will linger, with wholesale price forecasts suggesting that the average household energy bill might not get below £1,700 a year for the rest of this decade. That's around £600, about 50%, above where it was before the gas crisis, i.e. February 2021. Uh, 22 rather. If we don't get on with insulating homes, installing heat pumps and building more renewables, gas demand will remain high and that means bills will too. I'll repeat that. Energy prices will remain 50% higher than they were in 2019 until 2030. The post-Russia invasion of Ukraine context will be the norm. The Telegraph reported this Ofgem has also warned that energy bills are not expected to return to pre-crisis levels in the near future. Wholesale gas prices are expected to settle at between 2.5 times and three times their current level for the rest of the decade, while electricity prices are forecast to remain at 2 to 2.5 times their wholesale price, the ECIU said. And as well as that, it's important to highlight that while inflation fell this month from 10.1% to 8.2%, food inflation remains at record highs, coming in at 19.1% in April. So headline inflation is still high. Food inflation is at record highs. Interest rates are going to go up again. They're saying 5.5%. I think it's going to go beyond that, frankly, and that will show up in your mortgage bills and your rent. And meanwhile, energy prices are permanently higher. The cost of living crisis is something of a new normal. Next story: It's a bank holiday weekend, and then it's half term. So, with Parliament in recess for a week, it's the perfect time for the government to quietly drop legislation promises without too much scrutiny. Kept animals bill has been slowly passing through the House of Commons since it was first tabled in June 2021. It was a central plank of the 2019 Tory Manifesto, promising to ban live exports of farm animals, clamp down on puppy smuggling, and raise the standards of zoos. All sounds rather laudable. It had the backing of multiple charities, animal rights groups, and 107,000 people signed a petition to keep it moving into law. After all, improving the lives of animals is something that most people agree on. But now the government has ditched it. They say it's because they're meeting their manifesto commitments through secondary legislation. But a letter seen by the BBC suggests it's, as always, about politics. They report this. In a letter to Conservative MPs, the Environment Secretary, Therese Coffey, said that Labour had intended to widen the scope of the bill to include hunting, which she said would, quote, likely stoke unnecessary tensions and campaigns. Now, fox hunting has been illegal in the UK since 2004, but what's still legal is this, trail hunting. It's where a dog and rider follow an artificial scent. That sounds harmless, but it's often used as a cover for the actual killing of foxes. Labour would like to strengthen the ban on hunting, but a spokesperson said they had no plans to add amendments to the kept animals bill. So it sounds like the tensions Coffey was referring to are coming from within the Tory party. Hunting is still, believe it or not, a live issue for some Conservatives. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt wanted to make it legal again during last year's Tory leadership campaign, and former PM Liz Truss supported its return. In 2005, Boris Johnson wrote this article in The Spectator. The end of part of England. Boris Johnson goes out with the last legal meeting of the East Sussex and Romney Marsh foxhounds and welcomes the coming campaign by honest people to preserve their tradition. In it, Johnson said he, quote, loved hunting with hounds and described his relationship with the horse as, quote, semi-sexual. Hmm. With Boris Johnson, I wouldn't put much past him, even David Cameron-style antics with other species. But he dropped a pledge to let MPs vote on overturning the ban from the 2019 Tory manifesto to absolute fury from some in his party. Claire Bass is senior director at the Humane Society. She posted this statement on social media. The government's decision to abandon the kept animals bill is an astonishing betrayal of both animals and public trust. The real reason Whitehall sources tell us is that the bill has been dropped because of concerns that it could act as a vehicle for uncomfortable debates that the government does not want held on polarising issues such as hunting with dogs. Vital protections for dogs, calves, sheep, primates and other animals have been sacrificed today at the government's altar of self-serving political convenience. How many times have we heard those words about the Conservatives? The Tories have also been criticised by members of their own party for the move. The Conservative Animal Welfare Foundation includes amongst its patrons Zach Goldsmith, Michael Gove, and Carrie Johnson. Presumably, it's thanks to her, a well-known animal lover, that Boris Johnson lost his appetite for hunting in 2019. In their statement, they said this, Almost 14 million people elected this government on a platform which promised to deliver for animals. More recently, the continuation of this bill was promised by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in 2022 during his leadership campaign. It is these promises we call on the government to honour today and ensure that provisions to improve the lives of huge numbers of animals set out in the Kept Animals Bill are carried out in legislation. Moya, I know you've got some strong feelings about this. Why do <laughs> many conservatives still support practice like fox hunting?
1: It's really fascinating to me. I come from the rural English countryside, and there are still signs up when you go back there about the 2004 fox hunting ban, and still people, you know, trail hunting is still very much a thing there. There's fox hunting that occurs under the banner of trail hunting and everybody knows it. Um, And I think it was Oscar Wilde who described fox hunting way back in the 1800s as the English country gentleman galloping after a fox, the unspeakable in full pursuit of the uneatable. What I think this, this story speaks to is the wider Tory disdain for the natural environment around us. And it's really interesting to me because traditional English conservatism is so associated with this idea of the rich landowner, rural England, the countryside, you know, where I come from is overwhelmingly Tory in voting intention. But the Tories do repeatedly show their disdain for this environment. There was a really telling report in January that came out where the government's own environmental watchdog said that they were presiding over the eye-watering decline of UK wildlife. And in 2018, then Tory ministers had signed up to this uh, 25-year plan, which was meant to protect UK wildlife. But the watchdog in January said that they'd failed to make progress on any of the 23 targets that were in this plan. And this issue to me, you know, the potentially bringing back fox hunting, not protecting wildlife, is not separate from the same issue as allowing privatised water companies, for example, to dump sewage, raw sewage in our rivers and waterways, and then making the taxpayer foot the bill for new infrastructure. It's also not separate from the absolute lack of impetus on other climate policies or, you know, making sure that farming and land management is in line with our climate goals. And the watchdog pointed out that this is also to do with a lack of coordination across government departments. You know, DEFRA can't on their own fix the environmental policies that the Tories have. They, Without the Department of Housing's involvement, without the Department of Business and Energy, all these things go hand in hand. And there was also this dallying over whether they would scrap EU law. And most of England's environmental protections are based on EU regulation. And with the Tories, what we see is this absolute lack of long-term planning. And the more fragmented they get, the more we get turnover in government, the more that every every day there's this new policy announced that's replaced by another new policy next week because they desperately throw stuff at the wall, hoping that it will make their polling go up, then so too do these massive long-term questions like our environment suffer because these plans are just not being enacted and no new, no new ideas are coming through, no joined up thinking is happening. It's so fragmented. And I do not see the fox hunting, you know, will they, won't they as separate yeah. from any of that.
0: I knew you went from London, but I wasn't quite sure where, you know, if Navarra develops its own version of Countryfile, maybe you can be the face of it. So where, where does Moya Lothian uh, McLean Herald from? You've, got my, you've piqued my interest.
1: <laughs> Moira Lothian McLean Herald's from a place called Herefordshire, which is on the Welsh border. Oh, I'm from fully rural England. I grew up a mile from the nearest bus in like a black and white cottage. So for the Navarra viewers who are hoping that we have more regional diversity, I am sadly it, although I do now live in London.
0: Herefordshire, lovely. I love Hereford. have to say, this time of year, Welsh borders, very nice place to be. Hereford is not on the Welsh borders, it's quite near them. Next story. Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford has been meeting community leaders in the suburb of Ely in Cardiff. That's where, earlier this week, two teenage boys, Kyrie Sullivan, 16, and Harvey Evans, 15, were killed in a collision while riding an electric bike. Soon afterwards, riots erupted at the scene of the crash. Between 100 and 150 residents gathered in the street. They said that the boys had died while being pursued by the police. When officers tried to clear the crowd away, they threw fireworks and set cars alight. In the immediate aftermath of the unrest, South Wales Police and Crime Commissioner Alan Michael dismissed the community's claims about the police as false rumours but multiple instances of CCTV footage later showed that, despite their denials, the police had at least, at least followed the boys at speed. On Wednesday, South Wales police gave a press conference where they finally admitted a police fan had been involved, but they still refused to apologise. The case is now being investigated by the Independent Office for Police Conduct, but it's against that background of enormous distrust, sadness, and tension that Drakeford came to Ely and he had some strong words for the UK government. Drawing a connection between this week's disruption and 1991's so-called Ely Bread Riots, Drakeford told The Guardian this, I know it just takes years to recover from these sorts of events. Fundamentally, it seems to me, the difficulties of 1991 happened 13 years into a Conservative government, and here we are, by chance, as much as anything else, 13 years into a Conservative government again. What is common between them is that it's 13 years of the erosion, the systematic erosion of the things that sustain community life. You phrase social fabric at your peril and we see what happened on Monday. Many people in Ely will rely on social security benefits for their weekly income. They have been systematically eroded over the last 13 years. People have less and less to live on, and they see their bills going up every day. The struggle is not theoretical for those people. It's something that matters and bites into their lives every single day of the week. And the public services that are there to try to help them through all of that have had 13 years of budgets, reducing every single year as well. So I don't think you can understand what happened in Ely without understanding that sort of fundamental background cause for a human response. Asked whether the Welsh government had failed the community, Drakeford said this, I think all layers of government and all aspects of government are right to look at themselves in the mirror and ask exactly that question. So we will certainly be doing that as a Welsh government. It wasn't only politicians that Drakeford held responsible. He added this, there are people whose own behaviours were absolutely indefensible. They must be held accountable for it and there may have been some service failures on the night. We will learn about that when the independent investigation is concluded pretty clear there, to me at least, that service failures means the police. Speaking of his own personal distress about the events, Strakeford also said this. First of all, and foremost of course, for those young men who lost their lives and for their families and their friends, it's hard to imagine what they will be experiencing. But also I feel desperately sad for the wider community of Ely, which is full of absolutely decent, hardworking people who ask nothing more than to go about their own lives peacefully. And for them, the reputational damage that is done to the area by these sorts of events is just a huge weight on their shoulders. It's interesting, isn't it, Moir, that the most vocal critics of the government on a host of issues, but, but particularly the police, seems to come from what you might call counter-elites. So you see a little bit with the SNP... You see it, obviously, here with Mark Drakeford. You saw it a little bit with Sadiq Khan. Now, that's not to say they hold radical lines on policing, uh, but it seems to me that dissenting voices to Westminster come from outside Westminster. Scotland, Wales, London, Manchester. Is there anything to that?
1: When we say the most vocal... (laughs) Let's think what we are about. But yes, there is obviously a trend of counter-elites who recognize that centralized Westminster policy is not fit for purpose. And I don't think we can ignore that these are also people from opposing political parties. Um, it is interesting as well. Within the police, there is pushback against the hard line, you know, crackdowns on ideas of antisocial behavior that the conservatives have. Uh, brought in and that Labour are also in support of. So this is something that I want to read you, that Andy Cook, who was the retiring head of the Merseyside Police, said in 2021. And he said, the best crime prevention is increased opportunity and reduced poverty that's the best way to reduce crime. So there needs to be more substantial funding into the infrastructure of our inner cities and our more deprived areas. Why do people get involved in crime and serious crime? It's because the opportunities to make money elsewhere aren't there for them, and never so, more so than in our inner cities and in our difficult police areas. And something I want to add to that, because I don't think we should, when the police talk about what is crime and inner city areas, I don't think we should take that wholesale, is we need to consider how over low-income areas like Ely are. So how inequality and lack of opportunity drives behaviours that are then codified as antisocial or criminalised. And I remember a story that I was going to cover a couple of years back, you know, way up in West Yorkshire about a tiny village that was being terror- terrorised by teenagers. There was lots of vandalism, lots of low-level arson, that kind of thing. And I didn't. It, unfortunately, we didn't get to bring this to print, but when I got up there, what I discovered was a very classic story of how austerity had absolutely hammered this village and how the opportunities for young people there had completely disappeared. They felt so stymied. And what they did have access to was, you know, nearby cities where they could get hold of, you know, narcotics and substances as young people, but they didn't have anywhere to go, anywhere to channel these things. So that was an absolute recipe for disaster. And we look at places like Ely, where food bank uses has exploded so much that someone who was running a food bank there had to stop because she just didn't have the resources to continue with it. And we look at the Tory and Labour responses, which have been to once again start hammering this drum of antisocial behaviour, from, you know, NOS bans to Labour's pledged respect orders. And all this does is criminalise symptoms of declining society, like homelessness, and it tries to turn social decay and what happens when you, you've got a society that's in decay, you've got communities that are fraying, you've got these services which are being removed into an individual moral failing rather than the state's failing. And that's what, how you get a situation where two boys in an electric bike can be chased by police in a police van and ends in a crash. And then the police say, well, we weren't chasing them. Complete lie. Try, you know, Try and fudge whatever happened around it. You have to look at why in the first place were the police chasing these boys? And the reports that have come out of Ely afterwards said that these two boys were in particular fear of one police officer. There's no suggestion this police officer was involved in this chase or whatever, but they were in particular fear of this one police officer who apparently always targeted them. Why are we, you know, living at a time when two young teenagers can have a specific police officer who they recognize as overtly policing them about whether they go about their day-to-day lives and where we see that teenagers are turned into these ideas of threats to the societal fabric we have, rather than recognising that these are, you know, really low-income areas where opportunity has to be provided. We've already had this chapter back in the noughties with ASBOs, which summarily didn't work, and instead we're seeing it come back again with antisocial behaviour plans. And I think that's all completely linked to what happened in Ely this week.
0: There's a few points I want to come back to, but first the clarification: Why, when I said that the most vocal critics of this, I, I don't mean you know activist groups or individuals. I mean institutional actors. So I mean, I don't think, for instance, you know, Sadiq Khan is the most radical voice when it comes to dissenting views on policing. But within, let's say, the establishment, within the state apparatus, it seems to be counter elites in Wales, Scotland, um, the major city administrations, which are really at odds. It, it seems on many issues with Westminster. Um, and what you said there, Moira, I'll come back to the question in a moment, what you said there about young people and how they're treated by the police, it's just so spot on. And I, I'm at an age now, you know, I'm in my late 30s, I can honestly say in my personal experience, and I think this is borne out with the statistics too, young people are better now, they're nicer now, they're less violent than they were in the 1990s. We, we know that they drink less. They're less likely to take drugs. I don't think there's any correlation between drugs and violence. That's, you know, but park that. There's a story here which I think is broadly inaccurate from from the media in terms of young people in this country. Um, they're just they're less disposed to violence, criminal damage, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, than all of these things um, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, and yet they get such a hard rep from the media. I mean, I think that you know the laughing gas one is just it's littering, obviously littering isn't positive, but the idea that it's somehow on a par with the most antisocial behaviour imaginable is just, it's nonsensical. Uh, and I, I i think this is really important to say, particularly to younger people, you are not bad people, you're good people. You're far better than young people when I was your age. Uh, despite what the politicians and and some people say uh, towards the upper echelons of our culture, simply not true. Um, And I really feel for them because they've had such a bum deal on economics, public services, then COVID, housing, and they still are the target of such nonsense from people with far more resources and far more power. Moya, you made a really interesting point. I want to come back on this, which is you said that the people criticising, you know, in this instance, policing in South Wales uh, are, are from parties who aren't in government. So... Is it less likely then that people like Mark Drakeford or Sadiq Khan, do you think they'll be less likely to criticise the police if we have a Labour government at Westminster, say, after 2024?
1: You're asking me to make a prediction there, Aaron, <laughs> and my least favourite thing to do is make predictions. Um, I think, I don't think Drakeford, Welsh Labour are separate from English Labour, and I don't think Drakeford would shy away from criticizing the police, if those things. But I do think there will be a reticence that we don't see now. Um, and a closing up of shop when it comes to the ability to, you know, call a spade a spade and say, well, this policing strategy has failed. This has done this. Because you've you've got like a Labour mayor who's willing to take shots at Keir Starmer's party. We've seen how Starmer's willing to in turn, crack down on dissent, Um, whether that's through normal party means or whether he goes around the back door and makes sure that that person does not say things again. You know, you cover the story about how black MPs were afraid to be talking about anti-black racism in the party recently. So I do think we might see less willingness to come out and talk about these state institutions if it's Labour that's, at the head of them um, and that is probably just a very normal thing that happens when you get these parties of government and we'll all be poorer for it, frankly.
0: Yeah, it's an open question, isn't it? I think it's really interesting because Labour does have a foothold in it, with the major, you know, city mayors and with Wales, obviously, um, and it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting sort of new feature that, you know, Labour didn't have to contend with really after 1997, with the exception, of course, of Ken Livingston, and they brought him into the fold very, very quickly. Next story. We all know that Tories are rubbish. We've watched them trash the economy and spin hatred in a desperate bid for votes. And we've seen them cycle through three prime ministers, yes three, in the space of a year. Yet, Labour isn't guaranteed a majority at the next election, certainly not on the basis of local election results earlier this month. So what's going wrong for them? Could it be that under Keir Starmer they look a little too close to the Tories? Well, that's what one BBC Question Time audience member called Harry wanted to know. A lot of you asked about this
3: next subject, so let's hear about it. Harry Joseph Kander.
0: Is the Labour leader Keir Starmer offering enough enough of an alternative to the Conservatives to gain a majority at the next election?
4: Who are you going to go to first?
5: Well, I thought I might come to you, Peter, what do you think?
4: (laughs) Harry, I think he is. Uh, And the reason is that we have set out a credible alternative to the government. If you just take the cost of living challenge that we had last summer, we saw this coming from outer space. The government did very, very little, too little, too late. We came out last August with a package that would have kept everybody's bills right where they were then, and it would have saved every single household £500. If the government had started investing into household uh, insulation when we called for it, that would be a million homes that could have had lower bills this year. So we're always coming out with radical, big, bold alternatives to the government, but they are also sensible, deliverable, and they respect taxpayers up and down the country. So yes, you know we are alter- we're putting forward an alternative. It is being rewarded. In the elections we had uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we increased our, the number of councillors by 500. The Conservatives lost a 1,000. We're doing well in the polls, but we know we've got a lot more to do. And believe me, every single one of us is working our absolute socks off to make sure we have the policies, the alternative, and we are the credible government of waiting so we can hit the ground running whilst we have a a government that seems to be doing everything it possibly can do to prepare itself
0: for opposition. We did this thing in the past, and we did that thing in the past. People voted for us in the local elections, and we're doing well in the polls. By the way, on the local elections point, the Liberal Democrats have picked up more councillors between 2020 and 2023 than the Labour Party. Generally speaking, if you're the opposition and you're going to form the next government, that doesn't happen. So the idea is evidence for Labour's success and enthusiasm doesn't really stack up. And also, Peter, that young guy's question wasn't about the past. It was about why he should vote for you in the future. Here's what Harry had to say in response.
3: Harry, you asked this question. What do you think of that answer?
0: Um, I would say that just from judging young people around me, I would say that they're not as excited, for example, a Keir Starmer government as he have been for previous uh, leaders of the Labour Party.
4: And And why do you think that is?
0: Um, I don't think he's offered enough of an alternative to the current government to re-differentiate between the two, like Labour have been able to do in the past. So I feel like even though the Conservatives have been pretty terrible for 13 years, it's quite embarrassing how Labour still may not be able to form a majority at the next election. It's quite concerning and I don't feel like they're really given a good opposition right now. So I'm still undecided personally where I shouldn't be, given the current state of the country. As it is at the moment. But, but, Harry, there
4: is nothing more exciting than being in a Labour Party that can actually have the, has the prospect of forming a government. I mean, it might well be that the but leaders, you're not convincing it might to give well your, be the leaders, the leaders in the past that you might have been excited about didn't win the elections and we need to learn the lessons of defeat as well as learn the lessons of where we've won in the past. Keir Starmer's learnt those lessons of, 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 of those of those defeats. He's put them into action what, so now. So the
3: unexciting and not clear, no, and then you might no, win. No, look, I mean, I look
4: mean? I'm listening very carefully to Harry and others. If there, if we still have people we have to convince or and excite about the, the prospect of a Labour government, we're setting about trying to do so, and I'm doing so with humility. But I think the fact that we want to repurpose the economy, we want to reinvest okay. in, in skills, education, we want to make sure that we're going to have the biggest house-building programme that we've seen for several generations, so that people like you can aspire to be uh, house home owners again, in a decent job, in a country that's respected around the world, rebuilding the opportunities that okay. have been wrecked by this government. These are things that are really exciting. Keir Starmer holds that promise. He can do it. Okay. But he can do the thing that well, very few the Labour the leaders come have done well. before, okay. and that's beat
0: the Tories, right. win an Election okay.
4: and get cracking, delivering
0: fairness okay. again. Without
3: a party political party <laughs> in let's the rest of the panel,
0: support. telling someone that something's really exciting doesn't make it really exciting. Labour have, have this habit, don't they? We saw it as well with with uh, Keir Starmer. I'm honest. You say you're honest, therefore you're honest. He says it there as well. I'm humble, therefore I'm humble. No, it's an action. Other people decide. And the idea that a young person should just be grateful that Labour stands a chance of winning this election in 2024 is frankly a joke in the face of genuine despair. What Harry says there, I'm undecided and I shouldn't be, indicates so much about what feels like a hopeless situation for the young and how little solace they're finding in Labour's offer. It was left to journalist Janet Street Porter to make this intervention.
3: Okay. Can I but, just say one thing? Go on. Right. On I mean, the night that Tony Blair was elected in 1997, I was there at Festival Hall and the atmosphere was electric because Tony Blair had what Keir Starmer lacks, totally lacks. Tony Blair, whether we like him or not, how we feel about him now is another matter. But in 1997, he exuded charisma. He was hot. <laughs> I mean, young people were captivated by him. He had a huge number of female MPs came into Parliament, the largest number ever elected at one time, and we felt we were on the beginning of a new era. Now, I'm sure that Keir Starmer is a decent, reliable bloke, but is that the kind of bloke you want to get into bed with the next 10 years? (laughs)
5: on on the show, Janet. No, serious, <laughs> but being <laughs> serious, <laughs>
3: seriously, I think Tony. Uh, uh, I think Keir Starmer comes across as a decent person, but I still don't understand his policies. You think under- hang on, hang on. Peter, don't let the person. rest of the panel do you think our country Peter, deserves, deserves a decent person? I know person. you want to answer every single bit, but well, I'm going to let the rest of the, the panel speak too. To. I to flog your party to death tonight, but uh, you've got to connect with the guy that oh. asked the question, and you haven't, Because young people, sadly at the moment, feel that British politics isn't for them. And there's a huge gap. I go back to 1997, where there was some hope that young people felt that when they voted, it would change their lives. And we've seen now there's a huge gap in the reality and the myth that
1: you lot put out. The thing is that Starmer does not offer a credible alternative to even being you know, a charismatic leader. He hasn't got that. I wouldn't call him boring per se. I think he's almost worse than that. He is somebody who people don't know what he stands for, but he very passionately declares it regularly. I I genuinely don't think he's boring. I think he is vindictive. I think he is a politician who is desperate, and and thin-skinned as well, is desperate to prove his, how he perceives his enemies wrong. The people that he sees as enemies is anyone who, you know, might be more popular than him, who might have proved more winning with the Labour membership, for example. People that he thinks is going to have any designs on his very fragile grip on power. Um, And I think that's what drives Keir Starmer. I see him as a, not even a technocrat, I see him as a very thin-skinned judiciocrat, is how I describe it. Somebody who is totally invested in Britain's sort of legal system and he sees that as a very rational thing that comes you know comes completely out of a vacuum and just is completely objective and is always right and that he is always right because he is so immersed in that environment um and in the, he doesn't offer charisma he's not but he also doesn't offer any hope he doesn't offer anything to vote for he is following this very tried and tested and failed strategy of simply mirroring what the tories do you know he says he has this mythical voter in mind. He doesn't see people as complex political animals. He sees people as just, you know, they want right-wing policies and because that's what the Conservatives are giving them and that's what, you know, win- the Conservatives have been winning. So people must want right-wing policies. And that's completely misunderstanding the political situation in the, co- situation in the country and why people would vote out of the politics of fear in the first place because they don't have other hope to vote for. They haven't, you know, we've got this huge media machine as well which works against any kind of politics of hope. Um, and I just think Starmer, all in all, is just a, he's a terrible politician. Um, he he doesn't have, you know, the charisma of Tony Blair, but he also doesn't have the ideas. He doesn't have anything to offer. All he has again and again and again is this sort of very barren, salted ground, which he's desperately showing to us and saying, look, I will show you hope in a handful of dust. But there is, there is no hope there to be had. Um, and he doesn't understand why that doesn't work. And the more he doesn't understand that, the more he hammers home, you know, we're going to be the party of, Cracking down antisocial behaviour. We're going to be the party of this borrowed plan for the Tories or this borrowed plan for the Tories, um, and all it leaves with you with is this idea that there is very little separating two parties. Like, yes, I do think a Labour government would probably be less draconian than the current Tory government, which is moving ever further rightwards. But in terms of long term. Massive change that this country needs to revolutionize it and reinvigorate it and actually bring it that respect that Peter Carl seems to think it has the world over, which it does not anymore. Then Starmer doesn't have that. Neither of the two political, dominant political parties offer that. And people become disillusioned with the entire process of democracy when you have a two party state with neither one really offering this sort of radical new position. You saw Johnson win in 2019 based on charisma, but also because he did offer a populist agenda which seemed to be this sort of radical promise. And then the Tories failed to really enact it on in any way that would, would cha- bring the change that he had promised to people's lives on the ground. Um, so that was a very long way of saying that I don't think people have had enough of Rogues, but I think they have had enough of stale, stagnated politics, which does not deliver on any of its radical promise or does not make that radical promise in the first place.
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, it's, our, our candidate happens to be boring. And by the way, people have had enough of boring candidates. Well, you know, you might want that to be the case, but I remember people saying that about Hillary Clinton in 2016. It wasn't true. Uh, Keir Starmer's lack of charisma is one problem for Labour going into the next election. But he has another one, as pointed out by Tory minister, Laura Trott, on Question Time.
3: So, Laura, the question is, is the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, offering enough an alternative to the Conservatives to gain a majority in the next election?
5: No. I totally get last year we made a lot of mistakes, right? And I'm really, really sorry for that. But who you've got in charge now is Rishi Sunak, he is a good man, he is a but He was chancellor man. during that no, time, it's I, not as if he wasn't there. I know, but he is, look, he, 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 was, he was. He was number two in the government when he, all these mistakes
3: that you're referring yeah, to exactly. were happening. exactly, and during
5: that time, he, you know, he produced furlough for the country. Was he just going country, like that? The, no, he produced furlough for the country which supported the jobs of many people in this room, right? He's got a track record of delivering for this country, and he's got five priorities that he's going to do this year. He's gonna halve inflation, He's gonna grow the economy, he's gonna reduce the debt, he's gonna cut those waiting lists which are way too long, and he's gonna stop the boats. And you compare that, right, with Keir Starmer, like every pledge he's made, he's abandoned.
3: So he what do he you say to the young man over industry. there?
5: He thought he was going to nationalise all these industries, he's not going to do that anymore. He was going to scrap tuition fees, not doing that anymore either. He was going to be the great defender of free movement, he's not doing that anymore either. I've got no idea what Keir Starmer stands for.
0: Look. Whether you think Starmer's pledge-breaking is dishonesty or pragmatism, there's one thing Trott's answer shows. Keir Starmer is a very short-term politician. In abandoning not one, not two, but practically all of his leadership promises, he's given the Tories the gift of being able to, I think legitimately, question his integrity. And it lets them set Sunak up as the real, honest broker. In more evidence that this is going to be a repeat attack line, they even started selling merch. Keir Starmer flip-flops are now on sale in the Conservative Party shop. The description reads, In three years of rudderless leadership, Keir Starmer has had more flip-flops than Bondi Beach and more launches than NASA. Whether it's small boats or the economy, Labour has a liable-to-change leader who will flip his position if the politics flop to suit him. And you don't need to be a Tory to be concerned about Keir Starmer's integrity, because at the end of the day, we can argue back and forth about whether Labour is enough of an alternative to the Tories or not. And we can talk about how Keir Starmer has the charisma of a damp rag. But the bottom line is that whatever Labour offers under Keir Starmer, and by the way, I could like all of it. I could say, wow, these are great policies. How can anyone possibly trust him? He lied repeatedly to become Labour leader. So how can anyone take seriously a single promise he makes now? Britain just got rid of a serial liar as Prime Minister in the form of Boris Johnson. So the question is, why would we want another one? Next story. A London borough has just announced a national first and something of a transformative policy. Tower Hamlets is run by Mayor Lufvarr-Rahman and he wrote this on Twitter. Announcements. An historic day in Tower Hamlets, Cabinet has just officially approved the rollout of university free school meals for secondary students, making us the first local authority in the country to do so. Access to a decent, healthy meal is integral to a young person's success and a key part of my vision for improving life chances in Tower Hamlets. Especially in a cost-of-living crisis, uh, universal free school meals can change lives. Our universal lunches will be served from September with all Tower Hamlet schools on the scheme by January 2024. That's really quick execution. Now, it's common to hear reservations around universalism as an approach to things like free school meals. Why pay for middle-class kids to have decent meals for free, spend that money on just the poor ones? Now, I disagree, and the evidence suggests that universalism works for a bunch of reasons. We haven't got the time to talk about all of that today. But in Tower Hamlets, that argument is particularly irrelevant. Why? Because the borough has the highest rate of child poverty in the whole of the UK. According to City Monitor, 56% of children in Tower Hamlets lived in poverty in 2020. That's 25% higher than London as a whole and almost tripled the child poverty rate for the UK that year, which stood at 20%. So if anywhere needs free universal school meals for secondary school students, then it's Tower Hamlets. Now, you might remember a recent announcement by Sadiq Khan, the Mayor for London, about free school meals across the city. That was a commitment he made in February, but it's important to say it only applies to primary school children. In other words, from those aged 4 to 11. But that's something Tower Hamlets has done since 2014 when Rahman introduced the policy during his first tenure as mayor. The council claims this new policy will save local families a whopping £550 per year per child, and it's expected to cost £5.7 million, the borough's budget, by 2024. Rahman said that the plan was to help mitigate the impacts of household food insecurity, reduce health inequalities, and save families time and money. All seems very reasonable. Heaven forbid a politician does that. And I have to say, with this policy of free school meals, it makes so much sense. You're running a school canteen, surely it's good to know how many kids they're going to want, how much food. You don't have wastage, you can allocate resources efficiently. Monday to Friday, we have X number of people wanting X number of meals. Again, it's sensible, rational, makes sense. Why is that so rare in this country? While there was a BBC write-up of this story, the first thing that comes up on Google News for Lutva Rahman and the BBC, at least the time of broadcast, is this from February. This article just reads like a hit piece. Tower Hamlet's Lutva Rahman's council spending plans cause concern. They cause concern, presumably because a politician had the temerity to actually do something. The controversial mayor of Tar Hamlets, Luffer Rahman, has unveiled spending plans that would use millions of pounds of council savings to achieve his manifesto promises. Mr Rahman returned to lead the council last year, seven years after he was removed by an election court for corrupt and illegal practices. So the story is that there's a worry that an elected politician might do the things he campaigned on. Okay. It then makes clear this article is based on a random guy's tweet. Councillors were made aware last week that the East London Authority's Chief Executive Will Tuckley was to leave by mutual consent. The Chief Executive of the Chartered Institute for Public Finance, CIPFA, Rob Whiteman, responded to news of Mr Tuckley's departure by tweeting, Will Tuckley deserves the sector's thanks. Let's not have one of those moments when people recognise too late that there are problems. CIPFA has concerns Tau is going wrong again and will need intervention. I should add that the mayor's team told the BBC that the chief executive's departure was amicable and CIPFA's comments are, quote, completely unfounded. But the story here is this. Elected person does what they said they would. Unelected person on Megabucks leaves. Other unelected guy says maybe the elected guy should be replaced by more unelected people because he's doing the things he promised when he tried to be elected. Those things include, it turns out, free school meals for secondary school students. This story is such a great microcosm, isn't it, Moya? Because it seems to me that a fault for lots of people throughout the elites is to basically no longer believe in democracy. If you don't like someone, then they shouldn't be in charge.
1: I think a lot of the establishment are very opposed to democracy when it works against their interests. You know, you looked at that statement from Rob Whiteman, who talked about. SIPFA, he's from SIPFA, which is you know the accounting firm that looks after local authorities. And how he's saying, Oh, we're worried that Tower Hamlets is going wrong again. How is it going wrong again? It's perfectly within its rights to allocate part of its council budget to this massive cost saving scheme. And you know, you've now got these families that will have free school meals thanks to the Sadiq's car policy and this new policy all the way up until year 11. That is huge. That is going to save households hundreds if not thousands of pounds a year because free school meals are currently only available to households where the income is under £7,400, which is ridiculous. That's In London alone, I think it's something like 800, might not be London. Across the UK, there's only 800,000 children who miss out, who live in poverty and miss out on free school meals because of that really, really low cap, despite the fact their families desperately need a relief scheme like that. And if, you, we let's go back to that story at the beginning, actually, where we talked about, you know, the impact of the cost of living on these earners, on these households, particularly middle income earners who don't have support packages. And we talked about, you know, universalism. If you look at the way the cost of living is impacting inner city London, which matters because what happens to our cities eventually spreads to all our other ones, um, you know, you've got a huge shortage at the moment of children in inner-city London. Why? Because the cost of living is biting middle earners and families so hard that they cannot afford to live there, which is leading to school closures, which is leading to the people that work in schools leaving. You've got a mass excess of public sector employees. Hackney, there's a really good piece by Aditya Chakraborty in The Guardian where he looks at these school closures and what it says about the way that this cost of living crisis and the preceding years of austerity are reshaping what our cities look like and why that's important. And he says that Hackney has 589 fewer kids in reception classes today than it did in 2014, which is a shortfall Equivalent to 20 vacant classrooms. And there's a really good quote about children being this thing called an indicator species, which is as long as a city or a town has a good and large mix of kids, you know it will be fine. But the signs from London's indicator species are poor. And the changes that happen to London are also changes that happen to places like Manchester, Liverpool. We see it more and more. It costs so much to live in cities. And the for families and the people who support all the social services, such as, you know key workers, nurses, doctors, etc. They simply cannot afford to live there anymore. So our inner cities are being robbed, which means that our cities soon get robbed. And so you have this amazing scheme, which immediately relieves a huge amount of pressure on these families. And the nerve of this chartered accounting firm executive to come over and say, we're worried about the way the council direction is going. And if I I checked earlier, but I remember, they didn't say anything about Croydon, the Labour-run council, when it was absolutely bankrupting until well after the fact. There were no concerns raised there. When it was Labour-run council was absolutely bankrupting this borough through investment in property, et cetera, much more unwise decisions. Nothing was said by Sipfa until after the fact, when a lot of you know hindsight blogs were written. But now we have this policy which is actively, clearly going to improve lives in the very short term and long term. And they have the nerve to criticise it as financially irresponsible. It really shows you where the interests lie.
0: That's such a good point about um, Croydon Moyer. I mean, look, for me, Look, Verakman. I know he he raises passions. I mean, I interviewed the guy uh, last year. I I think he's a very affable, intelligent, calm man. I think he's been grotesquely misrepresented in the media. If you want to watch that, of course, uh, just search our YouTube channel. He had the temerity of being a brown man, I think, this is my view, um, who managed to win... Uh, on the basis of huge, overwhelming support from a minority community in London and to actually do something for working people. He had the temerity to do that. And by doing that, he put a target on his back. You know what? He came back and he's doing some pretty good stuff in office. You don't have to support everything he does, like LTNs, but this is fantastic. UK first, and I think a really commendable piece of legislation. Moya, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I hope you enjoy a wonderful weekend.
1: Thank you. You do. It's been really, it's been really fun. Maybe I should stretch my co-hosting muscles more often.
0: I think you're a really good co-host actually. I think we, we might knock Michael on the head. Um, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Come back on Monday at 6pm for another live stream. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
4: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.